You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's 11 a.m. on Monday, July 30th, 1866, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Inside Soule's Commercial College in the heart of the city, a 17-year-old accounting student named R.W. Todd stares idly out the window at the neighboring Lafayette Square Park below. Inside the large classroom, about 30 to 40 boys mill about waiting for their instructor to arrive. Todd has no interest in being an accountant. He longs to be outside, working with his hands, not cooped up inside a building all day, crunching numbers. His daydreaming, though, is interrupted by his classmate, Thomas Manning. Did you even hear what I said? Todd breaks his gaze, looks at his friend. Uh, No, sorry, I, I was just... Robert, you must start focusing more. Fall classes are just around the corner. Yeah, I know. You know? I don't think you do. If you fail, what will your father say? Todd's father is a strict man, a military officer enlisted by the federal government to protect black politicians and activists who are fighting for equal rights. He is a good man, and he has high expectations for his son. Before Todd has a chance to answer the question, the door to the classroom bursts open. Mr. Sule, a former Confederate soldier turned schoolmaster, enters the room in a hurry. His hair, normally neat, is tousled and his clothes unkempt. He struggles to catch his breath. Boys, I'm afraid class is canceled. All you should go home immediately. There's to be a riot at the Mechanics Institute down the street, and for your own safety, I must urge you all to exit this building at once. Boys in the classroom look at each other, puzzled and nervous. Mr. Soule raises his voice. Evacuate at once, damn it! As the students quickly gather their materials and head for the exit, Todd freezes in panic. His father works right next to the Institute. Just then, his classmate grabs him by the shoulder. Robert, we need to leave. No, 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 I need to find my father. Without another word, Todd sprints out of the classroom, races down the stairs, and bursts onto St. Charles Avenue. He runs north towards the French Quarter, where the Mechanics Institute sits just off Canal Street. Todd weaves his way in and out of the growing crowd, but there's too many people he can't get through. Todd glances around and sees a newspaper vendor perched high above the crowd. Todd calls out to him. Excuse me, sir, what is all this about? A bunch of Negroes are trying to vote in the upcoming election. Some proud New Orleanians are going to make sure that doesn't happen. Disgusted by the vendor's remarks, Todd darts up an alleyway to cut through some of the foot traffic. As he gets closer, he hears the faint sound of a marching band in the distance. When he rounds the corner onto Common Street, he sees a group of black protesters, a marching band in tow. Across from the protesters is a large group of armed whites staring them down. Then Todd sees a familiar face, the newspaper vendor from before. He emerges from the crowd of white protesters, marches up to a black man, and shoves him to the ground. Things turn violent fast. Someone fires a shot into the crowd of black protesters. Todd takes cover behind some pallets in an alleyway, and through the cracks of his hands covering his eyes, he witnesses one of America's most brutal atrocities the New Orleans Massacre. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
you know, cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham. And this is American Elections Wicked Game. The New Orleans massacre at the end of July 1866 served as a catalyst for the Republican Party. In the midterm elections of that year, Republicans rode a wave of anti-Democrat, anti-Southern sentiment and secured a majority in both houses of Congress. So then, starting in 1867, with a veto-overriding majority, Republicans passed several Reconstruction Acts aimed at establishing rights for Black Americans in the South, culminating with the ratification of the 14th Amendment in July of 1868, a law that guaranteed equal rights to all citizens, regardless of their race. In the presidential elections of 1868 and 1872, Republicans rallied around Ulysses S. Grant, the wildly popular former Union Army commander. Grant won both elections decisively, thanks in large part to the support of black voters. But Grant's second term was beset with political drama, Several prominent members of the Republican Party grew tired of Grant and his seemingly never-ending list of political scandals. During his presidency, Grant never shied away from sending federal troops to quell unrest in the South, and many Southerners reached their boiling point with what they felt was unnecessary military occupation. Through concerted efforts, Democrats began to slowly chip away at the Republican majority in Congress. In the lead-up to the election of 1876, President Grant would be confronted with the largest scandal of his presidency, a scandal that would force Republicans to change direction, look for a new identity, and a new leader. That new leader would guide the Republican Party towards a dubious compromise that would have horrific consequences, especially for the millions of newly freed Black Americans in the South. This is episode 23, 1876, Tilden vs. Hayes, Faustian Bargain. It's 9.30 a.m. on Monday, May 10th, 1875, at Busby's Distillery in St. Louis, Missouri. Joseph Gross, a 28-year-old bookkeeper, sits at his desk in an office located above the factory floor. A nervous man, Gross suffers from trichotillomania, a condition which causes him to have irresistible and recurring urges to pull out his hair. His condition has left him mostly bald and patchy. There's a knock at the office door. Just, just a moment. Gross makes his way to the office door. When he tries to grip the doorknob, his hand slips off. As part of his condition, his palms are perpetually sweaty. But for Gross, this is nothing new, so he takes a breath and tries again. Standing in the doorway are two government officials, Lucien Hawley and Elberton R. Chapman, special agents working under the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, a precursor of today's IRS. 
Hawley plays the part of good cop and asks with a smile, Are you ready, Mr. Gross? Nervous, Gross nods his head. Shall we venture out then? Hawley's partner, Agent Chapman, is the bad cop. Chapman says in a menacing tone, Don't forget your books and some whiskey. Together, the three men leave Busby's distillery and take a carriage to the Lindell Hotel, where Hawley and Chapman are staying. They enter through the hotel lobby and take the stairs up to room six. As they approach the room, Chapman puts a hand on Gross's shoulder. Nervous, son? Gross swallows. <sighs> a tad. Well, you should be. The three men enter the hotel room, with Chapman directing Gross to sit at a nearby table. Hawley uncorks a bottle of Gross's whiskey and offers him a glass. Drink? No, thank you, sir. I, I, I don't drink. A man who works in a distillery but doesn't drink. It, it upsets my bowels, I'm afraid. Hawley and Chapman share a look. Gross feels a single bead of sweat drip down his forehead into the corner of his eye. Well, let's get down to it, shall we? I, I still don't know what this is all about. You know damn well what this is about. We want the names of the distributors that your boss is dealing with. Gross places a hand on his stomach as it begins to turn in knots. Sensing Gross's nerves, Hawley intervenes. Joe, uh, do you mind if I call you Joe? Gross nods his head nervously. Hawley leans in close. Joe, we understand that Busby's Distillery, your employer, made several illicit deals, many of which were underreported to the Revenue Commission. Now, if we could just see your books... Hawley reaches out a hand to grab Gross's books, but Gross is faster and pulls the books closer to him. That they'll come after me. Mr. Gross, no, you don't understand. If they find out I cooperated, trust me, friend, the Revenue Commission can do a lot worse. Hand it over, now. Gross can tell Chapman isn't asking. So he reluctantly pushes the books over to Hawley. You're doing the right thing, Joe. I, I think I'm going to be sick. Suddenly, Gross runs to the bathroom. Hawley quickly skims over the accounting books, then silently looks up to Chapman, standing over his shoulder. Well, what do you got? Go downstairs. Send a telegram to Washington. Tell him lightning has struck. In the mid-1870s, President Ulysses S. Grant was well-positioned to be the first American president to run for a third term. Had he done so, given his popularity, he likely would have succeeded. Though a third term would have been a stark break from precedent, there were no laws preventing it. The 22nd Amendment, which limits presidents from serving beyond a second term, wouldn't be ratified until 1951. Privately, Grant had repeatedly dismissed the idea of a third term. But publicly, he said very little on the subject, which fueled rumors in Washington. Many in the Republican Party believed Grant was the only man fit to carry forward the unfinished work of Reconstruction. Many others feared that a third term would do irrevocable damage to the Republican Party. President Grant did not have the private designs for a third, but if he had, the whiskey ring scandal would have made those ambitions all but impossible. The Whiskey Ring was a wide-ranging conspiracy by government officials to divert revenues from taxes on whiskey to the pockets of a ring of co-conspirators. The mechanics of the crime were simple. Whiskey distillery owners would only pay a portion of the whiskey tax that was due. Bribed officials would stamp the bottles as if they had paid the full amount and then ship out their products. The story of how the Whiskey Ring scandal became public knowledge had begun back in the summer of 1874 when Grant appointed a man named Benjamin Bristow to be his new Treasury Secretary. Not long after his appointment, Bristow had learned of the existence of the Whiskey Ring, and he made exposing the ring his top priority. With the help of undercover agents and informants, men like Joseph Gross, Bristow slowly but surely nailed the facts to the wall. In May of 1875, he arrested more than 300 suspects. In the 1870s, evading taxes was nothing new in Washington. From the moment President Lincoln instituted the whiskey tax as a means for paying for the Civil War, unscrupulous businessmen had done their best to avoid paying it. Under the presidency of Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, shady whiskey dealers had lined their pockets and funneled vast amounts of money to Democrats in exchange for political favors. Still, the scope of this conspiracy was staggering. By some estimates, more than $4 million had been effectively stolen from the U.S. Treasury the equivalent of nearly $75 million today. From the moment the whiskey ring was exposed, many Americans wanted to know the answer to the question, how far up did this reach? 
If President Grant had something to hide, he didn't act like it. In June of 1875, Grant appointed a special prosecutor to lead the investigation, the first ever in American history. John B. Henderson, a fellow war veteran, was a politically savvy choice. He had been involved in Democrat politics, but was largely seen as nonpartisan and apolitical. Henderson, in conjunction with the Justice Department, handed down a slew of indictments, in total nearly 240. At the outset of the investigation, Grant gave Henderson his full support, saying, let no guilty man escape if it can be avoided. But when the investigation reached into the White House, Grant took on a different posture. The trail of evidence led Henderson to a man named General Orville E. Babcock, President Grant's private secretary and one of his closest friends from the war. In December of 1875, Babcock was indicted on charges of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. Treasury. Despite the overwhelming evidence, Babcock had convinced President Grant that he was innocent, casting the investigation as a politically motivated power grab because Babcock believed Grant's new Treasury Secretary, Benjamin Bristow, had ambitions to be the next Republican candidate for president. In February of 1876, Babcock's trial began, and at first glance, it did not look good for the president's secretary. Benjamin Bristow, Grant's Treasury Secretary, had secured dozens of convictions for those implicated in the whiskey ring, and Babcock's case looked open and shut. The paper trail seemed to indicate that the revenue stream generated through the whiskey ring was being orchestrated by Babcock. Still, Grant maintained his friend's innocence. Ultimately, Babcock asked his friend and employer, President Grant, if he would testify on his behalf. Grant's legal team quickly shot down the proposal. The idea of a sitting president testifying in a criminal trial for the defense was unprecedented. Grant's lawyers advised him to stay on the sidelines. But Grant was becoming increasingly frustrated by rumors in the press. One story, reported on by newspapers in Chicago and New York, simply wouldn't go away and claimed that Grant's own brother Orville and his son Fred were involved in the whiskey ring. The facts did not support the allegations, and Grant implored his legal team to force the reporters to testify before the grand jury and back up their charges. But again, Grant's legal team advised restraint. During Babcock's trial, the special prosecutor did not pull punches. He raised questions about President Grant's knowledge of the scandal. Furious, Grant ordered his attorney general to fire the special prosecutor. Democrats immediately cried foul in the press. When asked why he was terminated, Henderson told the New York Herald, I can only account for it by Grant's madness and desire for revenge on hearing of the indictment of General Babcock. Grant's Secretary of State chalked up Grant's decision to paranoia, explaining that Grant believed the prosecution was aimed at himself and that they were putting him on trial. Grant went further and eventually defied the wishes of his legal counsel. On February 12, 1876, Grant sat in the White House for a nearly six-hour-long deposition, becoming the only president in U.S. history to testify in a criminal trial. Grant was hazy in his recollections of conversations he had with Babcock. Over the course of the deposition, Grant repeated a phrase that seemed to recur in the history of American politics, I do not recall. But Grant was crystal clear about one thing. Babcock had been a loyal secretary, he was a patriot, and he was innocent. In the end, Grant's decision to testify proved more persuasive than the controversy surrounding his decision to terminate Henderson. When Grant's sworn testimony was sent to court officials in St. Louis, it took the jury a mere two hours to render their verdict. Babcock was not guilty. Babcock was acquitted, but his relationship with Grant all but evaporated. He was forced to resign as Grant's personal secretary. As a consolation, Grant gave him an obscure post, the chief inspector of the 5th Lighthouse District, and effectively banished him to Florida. But the Whiskey Ring trials were ultimately very fruitful. Prosecutors convicted more than 100 men and recovered over $3 million in tax revenue. But President Grant and his administration had in large part survived the scandal, perhaps because they were innocent. Years after the fact, U.S. Attorney David Dyer wrote, General Grant had no knowledge of the existence of the Whiskey Ring when the prosecutions began, and therefore was not in the remotest manner a party to or in any wise connected therewith. His great mistake was in trusting men who did know, and this after their connection with the ring was a matter of common information. Grant was an honest man and implicitly trusted those he believed to be his friends. At no time during the prolonged inquiry was anything discovered that reflected upon General Grant's integrity. Still, as a result of the whiskey ring, Grant had become a symbol of corruption. 
In the midterm elections of 1875, the American people made their feelings known at the ballot box. Republicans kept the Senate, but they lost control of the House. It was an indication that voters were ready for a change in Washington. On June 14, 1876, Republicans met in Cincinnati, Ohio, for the Republican National Convention. The party platform was extremely critical of the Grant administration, citing its corrupt centralism, which, after inflicting upon 10 states the rapacity of carpetbag tyranny, has honeycombed the offices of the federal government itself with incapacity, waste, and fraud. At the convention, delegates nominated three-term Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes, a squeaky-clean Harvard lawyer, war veteran, and former congressman. New York Congressman William A. Wheeler was picked as Hayes' running mate. When reached for comment in Washington about his party's new nominee, Grant told reporters, Governor Hayes is a good selection and will make a good candidate. The corruption of the Grant administration had given new life to a Democratic Party that had been reeling since the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson in 1868. Democrats rallied around the idea that Grant's administration was the most corrupt and ineffective in American history. To fight what they saw as a disease of corruption in Washington, they also would turn to a do-gooder, a Democrat from New York, also a skilled lawyer with a reputation for uncompromising honesty. Democratic nominee Samuel J. Tilden would ride the wave of anti-Grant, anti-Republican sentiment and make the election of 1876 the closest in American history yet. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Just before Halloween in 1985, a pipe bomb exploded in an office building in downtown Salt Lake City, killing a man and leaving the entire city on edge. As the smoke cleared and investigators began the search for answers, it became terrifyingly clear that this was just the beginning. Suddenly, looking for the culprit became a race against time. Hi, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, host of the new true crime history podcast, American Criminal. We take you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side to the American dream. In our latest season, the desperate hunt for a killer leads the authorities through the complicated world of historic document collectors and eventually right to the door of the Mormon church. Listen to American Criminal, The Salt Lake City Bombings, wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com. Samuel Tilden was a rising star in the Empire State who had earned a reputation for taking on corruption in New York. In the early 1870s, he had gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with a notoriously corrupt New York politician named William M. Tweed, also known as Boss Tweed, the leader of Tammany Hall, the Democratic Party machine in New York. Tilden had won the battle and had effectively driven Tweed and his bought-and-paid-for politicians out of power. That victory helped Tilden win the governorship of New York in 1874, and it positioned him well as a candidate in the presidential election of 1876. On June 27th of that year, less than two weeks after the nomination of Rutherford B. Hayes, the Democratic National Convention met in St. Louis, Missouri, and united behind a popular ticket, Samuel J. Tilden of New York and his running mate, the beloved Indiana Governor Thomas Hendricks. On the campaign trail, Tilden supporters attacked Republicans with continued charges of corruption, but the centerpiece of the Tilden campaign was the issue of Reconstruction. Tilden called Republican Reconstruction a systematic and insupportable misgovernment imposed on the South. In defending themselves against these charges, many Republicans felt caution was important. 
1876, many Americans were experiencing what might be called moral fatigue on issues related to race and equality. To many Republicans, using the federal government to protect black voters in the South was starting to look like a losing issue. Despite the shifting sands of public opinion, during the final years of Grant's presidency, civil unrest in the South was still a problem. Even after the ratification of the 15th Amendment, the rights of black voters were constantly under siege. As one black congressman from Mississippi explained, the Democrats were poised to carry every Southern state, not by the power of the ballot, but by an organized system of terrorism and violence. And by the summer of 1876, the violence in South Carolina had reached a boiling point. An armed insurgency was wreaking havoc, hell-bent on suppressing the Republican vote and keeping black Americans away from the polls. President Grant had repeatedly requested congressional authority to intervene, but worried about the political fallout, Republicans in Congress had not agreed. Determined to maintain order, though, Grant stood before the Senate in July of 1876 and bemoaned the disgraceful and brutal slaughter of unoffending men at the town of Hamburg, South Carolina. Grant decried the murders and massacres of innocent men for opinion's sake or on account of color. He was committed to his mission, and this time Grant did not wait for congressional approval. In August, he ordered his war secretary to position troops and have them stand at the ready to march on the South. But the threat of federal troops did not stop the insurgents. The Republican governor of South Carolina told the New York Times, The lawlessness, terrorism, and violence far exceed in extent and atrocity any statements yet made public. The governor wrote Grant pleading for help. Three weeks before Election Day, Grant answered him by signing a proclamation that gave an ultimatum. The armed insurgents in South Carolina had three days to disperse, or Grant's troops would remove them by force. For Republican nominee Rutherford B. Hayes, Grant's proclamation was a political disaster. For the entire election cycle, Democrats had been warning voters that Republicans would use the federal government to trample on the rights of the southern states. By signing the proclamation, Grant had fundamentally proved one of the Democrats' main talking points. For many Republicans, this proclamation was the last straw. Some went so far as to switch parties and declare their support for Tilden. So going into Election Day, all signs pointed to a Tilden victory and a Republican rout. It's November 7, 1876, in New York City at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, the Republican headquarters in the election of 1876. The campaign office is empty, save one. M.A. Clancy, a 40-year-old stenographer and Republican clerk who is hard at work burning the midnight oil. The campaign is nearly over. Clancy is busy packing up files, records, and campaign documents. He's dejected. Early reports indicated that Tilden would defeat Hayes in a landslide. The rest of Clancy's Republican colleagues have already given up and gone home. Then Clancy's night gets worse when his office door swings open, revealing Daniel Sickles, the 57-year-old American minister to Spain. Sickles is a war veteran. He lost his leg in the Civil War, and somewhere along the way, he lost his tact, too. As he hobbles into the room, he bellows obnoxiously. Well, how bad did we lose? What are the latest returns? You will find them on the desk of Mr. Chandler. That's Zach Chandler, the Republican National Committee chairman. Ah, and where is old Zach? He took two large bottles of whiskey and went upstairs to his room. Sickles crosses over to Chandler's desk. As he begins to rife through the stack of papers, something catches his eye. Sickles produces a pair of glasses and reads it slowly, carefully. He mutters under his breath. Oh, no, it's close. Pardon? Clancy, you fool, look. The election is incredibly close. If my figures are correct based on fair probabilities, Hayes is the winner. Am I correct in my assumption that you've been to the bottle this evening? But Sickles doesn't answer. Instead, bolts into the hallway outside. At the end of the hall, he sees Republican Chester A. Arthur, the New York collector of the port. Mr. Arthur, Mr. Arthur, a moment, please. What is it, Sickles? See for yourself. Look at these returns. Arthur takes a piece of paper in his hands, and as he reads the words, his eyes spark with new life. Mr. Arthur, if you advise it, I have no doubt Mr. Clancy will send a telegram requesting that the states with close returns should not concede. We have a chance, Mr. Arthur. Get to work then, Mr. Sickles. On election night, Clancy did send a telegram to party officials in South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. The message read, With your state sure for Hayes, 
he is elected. Hold your state. In the election of 1876, Tilden won the popular vote by a quarter million ballots. But with only 184 electoral votes, he was one shy of the 185 required for victory. Three states were too close to call, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. Hayes had 166 electoral votes. If all three contested states and their combined 19 electoral votes went to Hayes, he could pull off an upset with just one more electoral vote than Tilden. But the outcome of the election was uncertain at best, and reports in the press added to the confusion. On November 9th, the New York Times headline read, The Battle Won, a Republican Victory in the Nation. On the other side of the city, the New York Sun's November 9th headline called it the opposite way. Tilden is elected, the Democrats jubilant. Immediately, both parties went to work, dispatching senators, representatives, lawyers, and political operatives to each of the three contested states. Shortly after Election Day, Grant received an urgent telegram from Zach Chandler, the chair of the Republican National Committee and his secretary of the Interior. Chandler had dispatched a train carrying Republican aides south to verify election returns. The train, though, had been knocked off the tracks in an act of what some called Ku Kluxism. Chandler urgently wrote Grant, There is no doubt of our majority if we can secure an honest canvas, but the indications are that violence is to be freely resorted to. We shall need an army to protect us. Grant's response was swift. On November 10th, he ordered General Sherman, the Army's head commander, to dispatch troops to the South to protect the integrity of the election. Grant wrote to Sherman, Should there be any grounds of suspicion of fraudulent counting on either side, it should be reported and denounced at once. Either party can afford to be disappointed in the result, but the country cannot afford to have the result tainted by the suspicion of illegal or false returns. If Grant was trying to protect the integrity of the election, many Democrats did not see it that way. To them, it looked like Grant was using the powers of the presidency to steal the election from Tilden. On November 11th, J. Dixon Burns, a prominent doctor in South Carolina, wrote to the editors of the New York World, If the spirit of liberty still survives, the issue is Tilden or civil war. Burns was not alone in his thinking. A multitude of Democrats sent telegrams to Tilden and Democratic Party leaders promising to arm themselves if party leaders felt the election was being stolen. All they had to do, Democratic supporters pledged, was ask. In Washington, there was tremendous pressure for the election to be resolved before Wednesday, December 6th, the federally mandated meeting of the Electoral College. This was a challenge in Florida especially, a massive state of remote counties with no telegraphs or railroads. These counties would likely be slow in delivering their returns and delay the process. There was also a concern on both sides of the aisle that the impending vote recounts in Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida would be tainted by fraud and corruption, and both parties accused the other of cheating before the process had even begun. Republicans controlled the state governments in all three states, and so they controlled the leadership of the canvassing boards. For many Democrats, that fact alone made the idea of a fair recount all but impossible. On the other side, Republicans complained that thousands of black voters had been kept from the polls as a result of voter suppression and violent intimidation. On November 13th, Hayes wrote to a fellow Republican, I believe that with a fair election in the South, our electoral vote would reach 200 and that we should have a large popular majority. Fraud was indeed rampant. In South Carolina, as an example, the total number of votes counted far exceeded the total number of eligible voters. To account for this, Republicans accused Democrats of dispatching operatives from other states to illegally vote. Democrats accused Republicans of paying Black Americans to vote multiple times. In South Carolina's Edgefield County, white Democrats had forcibly stopped hundreds of Black Americans from voting. And when the votes were counted, there were 2,000 more total votes cast than the entire adult male population. Republicans had won Edgefield County in every election since 1868. But in 1876, Democrats won by a margin of 3,000 votes. In New Orleans, Democrats accused Republicans of illegally striking thousands of Democrats from the voter registration list. In one Florida county, it was discovered that several hundred Republican voters were not people who existed. The truth is, during the contested election of 1876, both parties were guilty of corruption. In all three states, the loyalty of local officials was often for sale. 
Political operatives from both parties sought to buy their loyalty and the votes of their districts. On November 20th, the state-appointed canvassing board in Louisiana began their work. When the head of that board, a Republican, declared that the recount would be conducted in secret, Democrats cried foul in the press. But there was little else they could do. After weeks of discussion and debate, the canvassing board would make their final judgment. Louisiana and its eight electoral votes would be given to the Republican, Hayes. On November 21st, the South Carolina canvassing board ruled that Hayes had won the state by less than 1,000 votes. Democrat lawyers pressed for the Supreme Court of South Carolina to intervene, charging that the Republican-controlled board had illegally thrown out votes to sway the recount for Hayes. But their cries for intervention were fruitless. Under South Carolina law, the state Supreme Court had no jurisdiction over the canvassing board. So with no legal recourse available, Tilden and the Democrats would be forced to concede South Carolina to Hayes, giving him seven more electoral votes. The Democrats' last hope would come down to the state of Florida. In Florida, the Republican-controlled canvassing board took steps to ensure the integrity of the recount. Local officials were interrogated to ensure the counts were honest and not bought. But to many, the board's attempt at oversight was an exercise in futility. One Republican lawyer wrote to his wife, It is terrible to see the extent to which both parties go in their determination to win. Nothing is so common as the resort to perjury. Money and intimidation can obtain any required statement. On November 29th, with Republican and Democratic lawyers present, the Florida canvassing board finished the recount. Hayes had defeated Tilden by a razor-thin margin, 24,327 to 24,284, just 43 votes. But the election was still too close to call. So the canvassing board in Florida conducted another recount and deliberated until December 5th, one day before the Electoral College deadline. After tossing out illegal, dubious, or suspicious votes in both Republican and Democratic counties, the canvassing board officially declared the state of Florida for Rutherford B. Hayes. In the final count, Hayes won by less than 1,000 votes. When the Electoral College convened on December 6th, things got even more complicated. All three too-close-to-call states, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida, sent conflicting sets of electoral votes to Washington. And then a fourth state got in on the act. Democrat officials in Oregon had disputed Hayes' victory there. And so, at the urging of party bosses, the Oregon governor, Democrat Lafayette F. Grover, had given one of Hayes' electoral votes to Tilden. With four states in doubt, the issue would fall to Congress. With the country on the verge of a constitutional crisis over a disputed election, Congress would create a bipartisan panel comprised of senators, members of the House, and Supreme Court justices. This panel would be charged with reaching a decision that both parties would accept as final. In the end, the outcome of the election and the fate of the nation would come down to the opinion of one man, Associate Justice Joseph P. Bradley. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her Half of History is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. 
Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's February 6th, 1876, just before midnight at the Washington home of Abraham Hewitt, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Hewitt sits in the parlor with former Confederate General Richard Taylor. The mood is tense. The two Democrats' thoughts are fixed on a constitutional crisis that's rocked the powers in Washington, the contested election of 1876. <sighs> what is taking him so long? Give him time, General. It's nearly midnight, Mr. Hewitt. Mr. Stevens will be here, I assure you. That's John G. Stevens, a Democrat ally with a very important friend in Washington, a friend who holds the fate of the nation and the outcome of the 1876 election in the palm of his hands. There are seven decided Republicans on the committee, Mr. Hewitt, and seven loyal Democrats. Yes, which leaves our fate in the hands of Justice Bradley. Two days ago, the newly established Electoral Commission began hearing arguments over the contested state of Florida. Democrats like Hewitt want the commission to investigate alleged corruption of the Republican canvassing boards. Republicans say the Constitution does not give Congress the authority to interfere with a Florida board's decision. As early as tomorrow morning, Bradley will make his opinion known and decide Florida, either for Hayes or for Tilden. You are certain Justice Bradley will confide in Mr. Stevens and tell him his opinion? I have no doubt. The judge considers Mr. Stevens a true and loyal friend, nor do I have any doubt of the judge's integrity. Well, that makes one of us. Justice Bradley is loyal to the law above all else. Loyalty can be bought, Mr. Hewitt. No, Bradley cannot. He's a good man, General. He's a good Republican. He is a Republican, yes. And there are many in Washington who bow to the master of party loyalty. Justice Bradley is not one of them. I tell you, he will side with the law, and the law is with us. I hope you're right. Have faith, General. I just hope faith doesn't betray us all, Mr. Hewitt. Suddenly, the door to the parlor flings open as Mr. Stevens enters the room in a hurry. Gentlemen, I've just come from my conference with Justice Bradley. Hewitt and Taylor leap to their feet in anticipation. What says the judge? He will vote in favor of the Democratic electors in Florida. God be praised! Once Florida is decided in our favor, the rest of the contested states are assured, as is Mr. Tilden's victory. How can you be so certain? I read Justice Bradley's opinion myself. It is resoundingly in our favor. When is the vote, Mr. Stevens? The judge will read his opinion first thing tomorrow morning. Congratulations, gentlemen. Taylor is stunned. Hewitt gives him a friendly pat on the back. I told you to have faith, General. On the evening of February 6th, Hewitt and his guests parted ways confident that Justice Bradley would vote in favor of the Democrats. In Hewitt's words, we parted therefore with the assurance that all further doubt as to the presidency was at rest. The next morning, on February 7th, Bradley read his opinion. As Hewitt explained, I attended the delivery of the judgment the next day without the slightest intimation from any quarter that Judge Bradley had changed his mind. In fact, the reading of the opinion until the few concluding paragraphs were reached was strictly in accordance with the report of Mr. Stevens. In his book, The Secret History of the 1876 Election, Hewitt offers an explanation for Bradley's last-minute reversal. According to Hewitt, after Mr. Stevens left the judge around midnight, two prominent Republicans, a New Jersey Senator and President Grant's Navy Secretary, George M. Robeson, called on Justice Bradley in the middle of the night and pressured him to decide Florida in Hayes' favor. Justice Bradley had called a recess on February 6th, wanting time to think over his decision. The judge emphatically denied that he met with Stevens or anyone else for that matter. Regardless of the motivation, on Wednesday, February 7th, at 2.13 p.m., Justice Bradley rose and gave his opinion. As future President James Garfield explained in his diary, all were intent because Bradley held the casting vote. All were making a manifest effort to appear unconcerned. It was a curious study to watch the faces as he read. It was ten minutes before it became evident that he was against the authority to hear extrinsic evidence. Bradley held that even if evidence of fraud existed— Congress did not have the constitutional jurisdiction to intervene, and neither did the Electoral Commission. Bradley maintained that Congress's only role in a presidential election was counting electoral votes. So Bradley sided with the rest of the Republicans on the panel in an 8-7 decision. House Democrats did their best to stall the process. 
Bradley was lambasted in the press, accused of partisanship, and was even the target of death threats. But regardless, on February 9th, Hayes won Florida. One week later, Louisiana. And on February 23rd, Oregon. With three of the four contested states decided, only South Carolina remained unresolved. Still, House Democrats did not give up. James Garfield wrote that Democrats filibustered with all their might to prevent the completion of the count. And as these Democrats did their best to stall the process, Republican candidate Rutherford B. Hayes wrote in his diary, There is still some doubt, but apparently very little, of the result. Fearing that House Democrats would never give up the fight, Hayes wondered, I would like to get support from good men of the South, late rebels. How to do it is the question. Ultimately, therefore, the question of the 1876 election would be decided not on the floor of the Congress, but behind closed doors at a hotel in Washington, D.C. Leaders from both parties would come together to break the filibuster and strike what would come to be called the Compromise of 1877. The Compromise of 1877 had been months in the making. As far back as December of 1876, with the blessing of Rutherford B. Hayes, friends of his candidacy had served as intermediaries between Southern Democrats, largely former Whigs, and Northern Republicans. Eventually, terms were reached. Among other items, Southern Democrats wanted federal troops removed from the South, especially Louisiana and South Carolina. They wanted a Southerner in Hayes' cabinet, and they wanted Hayes to proclaim in his inaugural address that the federal government would no longer enforce Reconstruction laws in the South. In exchange, Hayes would get the White House, and Republican Congressman James Garfield would be elected Speaker of the House with Southern support. The creation of the Electoral Commission had temporarily put these talks on hold, but after Justice Bradley voted with the Republicans on Florida, the negotiations restarted. And in late February, with the Democrats' filibuster in full effect, both sides were ready to strike a deal. On the evening of February 26th, nine politicians, five Republicans and four Democrats, met in secret at the Wormley Hotel in Washington to finalize the arrangement. In exchange for Democrats agreeing to stop the filibuster, Republicans assured Democrats that Reconstruction in the South would end once Hayes was sworn in, including the removal of all federal troops from the South. With a few handshakes, the deal was done. The next day, South Carolina was awarded to Hayes, and at 4.10 a.m. on March 2nd, the official announcement came. Hayes was America's 19th president. The next day, on March 3rd, Hayes was sworn in during a secret ceremony at the White House. Two days later, on March 5th, Hayes was inaugurated in a public ceremony. He began his presidency under a cloud of controversy. He was called his fraudulency and rather fraud be Hayes. Though Hayes claimed that the conflicting claims to his presidency had been settled, many Democrats didn't see it that way. Jeremiah Black, the legal counsel for the Democrats, accused the commission of having a partisan bias, raging, we can never expect such a thing as an honest election again. At present, you have us down and under your feet, but wait a little while, retribution will come. For generations, many Democrat-friendly historians would call the 1876 contest a stolen election. Many attempted to cast it as the fraud of the century. But that assessment ignores certain realities. If black Americans had been allowed to vote freely in the 1876 contest, Rutherford Hayes would easily have carried all Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, and he likely would have carried Mississippi and Alabama, too. The evidence of Republican fraud does exist, but so does evidence of Democrat schemes to use intimidation, violence, and their own fraud to keep black Americans away from the polls. The only real loser of the 1876 contest was black America. The Compromise of 1877 had put an end to Reconstruction and installed a Republican in the White House, but it also marked the beginning of the era of Jim Crow. By striking their Faustian bargain, Democrats and Republicans doomed black Americans in the South to a terrible fate. Journalist Bob Becker would later say, Jim Crow laws stripped blacks of basic rights. Despite landmark civil rights laws, many public schools were still segregated. Blacks still faced barriers to voting and violence by white racists continued. Following the election of 1876, Many Republicans turned a blind eye as Democrats in the South sought to undo the progress of the 14th and 15th Amendments. It would be almost 100 years before Black Americans in the South truly earned the right to vote. Not all Republicans approved of the Compromise of 1877. One worth mentioning was Congressman James Garfield. 
He had attended the meeting at Wormley's Hotel that helped put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House, but walked out. Prior to the 1876 election, President Hayes had already announced his intention to only serve one term. It may not have mattered, because by the end of Hayes' tenure in the White House, many Republicans had turned on his administration, in large part because of Hayes' decision to make good on the Compromise of 1877 and withdraw federal troops from the South. In the election of 1880, Republicans would turn to the very man who had walked out on the Compromise. To secure his party's nomination, James Garfield would have to battle a divided Republican Party, a crowded field of nominees, and an unwanted October surprise. This is episode 23 of American Elections Wiki Game, 1876, Faustian Bargain. On the next episode, the election of 1880, after Rutherford B. Hayes steps aside, James Garfield becomes the Republican nominee. But to win the White House, Garfield has to fight to unite his party and best a war hero Democrat, all against the backdrop of the Gilded Age, an era infamous for greed, graft, and corruption. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by John Paul Green and Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.